the one man to profit was Hampston. Nobody had seen him as a threat for the overall Giro, although he'd won a stage in 1985 and twice won the Tour de Suisse. His talent was as a climber, not at winning long stage races. Yet that day he was in fifth place, 78 seconds behind the leader. He rode, though, for the inexperienced and under-equipped 7-Eleven team, largely American, and offering more enthusiasm than experience. The bunch mocked it as Team Slurpee, after a frozen drink that 7-Eleven sold. Experienced riders ordered them to stay at the back so they could knock each other off, but nobody else. Hampston had been tipped off by a friend, Gianni Mota, who had won the Giro in 1966. He had taken to the Americans. He knew the Gavia and he knew nobody had raced over it for nearly twenty years. He had, he said, and he knew that riders and managers were underestimating it. Hampston was a talented climber. He could make something of it. He could win the Giro. Hampston remembered. He smiled and said, That's really nice of you to say so. But he was like, No, I'm serious. Mota protested. These guys, (laughs) they think it's just another climb. In that, anyway, the Americans were better prepared than most. The family of their doctor, Max Testa, had rented a ski chalet at Bormio, on the other side of the Gavia, and the town where the stage would finish. Davis Finney says in his autobiography, For years, Max had been wearing us out with talk of this obscene climb, this glorified goat track with its ominous headstones, memorials to loved ones who had left the road and this earth in that order. He spoke of the backside of the mountain, a perpetually chilled valley, seldom penetrated by the sun. Testa had also spoken of a point at which the road would narrow to a single lane as it passed through a bunch of pines before becoming unsurfaced, and then, as a sign would point out, rearing to sixteen percent. Hampston recalled, All my competitors were watching me. They knew I was going to attack. And he attacked, crossing the summit and starting the descent, as scared as everyone of frozen snow and black ice. I kept my neoprene gloves on the whole time because I figured that if my fingers went numb, I'd never get them back. At the top, I struggled into a plastic rain jacket, and that's when Broykink caught me. On the descent, I had just one gear, because the thing was starting to freeze. So I feathered the brakes all the way down, and stayed in 53 by 14. The descent was a maddening number of turns and hairpins. I remember thinking, never look down, never look down. But he did look down and he felt horrified that his legs were red from the cold and that his shins had a length of ice. I was looking for road signs and marshals. Everything was fairly blurred together. I couldn't look for potholes, rocks, or obstacles. I was only concentrating on figuring out what was a curve and what was a gentle bend, and I was only putting on the brakes if it was a curve. Broykink, whom he'd passed, was still less comfortable and took his feet off the pedals several times to keep his balance. He reached Hampston before the finish in Bormio, from where a road also leaves to climb the Stelvio to the Austrian border, then pushed on. He came by so fast on Hampston's right that the American couldn't react. Hampston lifted himself out of the saddle, made an effort, then let the Dutchman go. Broykink would take the stage, but Hampston was going to lead the Giro, the first American in the leader's jersey of that race. Not that Broykink was confident, he looked repeatedly over his shoulder for a glimpse of the man he'd just passed. He rode the rise to the finish on his large chainring, powering along out of the saddle, hands on the drops of the bars, then lifted both hands in a victory salute above his sodden, blue, Panasonic jersey. Hampston followed seven seconds later. 
Broykink remembered. It was once in a lifetime. You have a stage like that. At the top, it was really a major blizzard. It was difficult to see. The snowfall was very heavy. On the downhill, you were really alone, because you didn't see a car behind. There were no fans on the road. You couldn't see anything in front of you. I've never been so cold in my career. Even one hour and one and a half hours after the stage, you were still shivering. Hampston said, after the race, I was just an emotional ruin. I remember I went up to the podium to try to do the TV interview, and I just left. I couldn't handle it. I went back to the car and hyperventilated. The car was nice and hot. Emotionally, I was on fire. I cried. I dried myself off a little bit and put on some more clothes, and after ten minutes, I was okay. Next morning, La Gazzetta dello Sport wrote of, A Day the Big Men Cried.